one pray is because she uh, at one time was unconscious during this, and I thought, I don't know what's happening. Uh, but he was like, ah, I don't know what's going on. And he went, he went right back to directing traffic. And the folk band played as the EMT was doing everything. They loaded, on, loaded the lady onto a stretcher, and they uh, carried her out right by people who continued to dance, right by people who continued eating their biscuits, people who continued having the party while this emergency was going on. And it was phenomenal. And she, again, I, to, to my knowledge, she ends up okay. But I thought, isn't that crazy how people can keep going on with life? It's as if they dare not distract themselves from their leisure preferences for this emergency situation. And I thought, we do that spiritually too, right? We live in a world that doesn't want to be distracted from their preoccupations, from their hobbies, for something as trivial, they think, as a gospel emergency. What I mean by that is the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us that we are in an emergent state spiritually, that because we have rebelled, God in his mighty holiness is going to condemn us justly. And that's an emergency. And yet we walk around and people don't even want to make small talk about God or the spiritual things or the things of God. If you bring that up in conversation, it's often just awkward, right? And I can't help thinking that Paul must have felt this way too as he was writing the book of Romans. Remember his situation. Paul was going to visit Rome to do a couple of things. And think about what Rome was in that day. Ancient Rome, we know, if anything, was a party city, right? They had the Flavian Auditorium or the Colosseum that set 50,000 people that would gather just to watch these gladiator games. Uh, they had ghettos. They had, as one author said, every vice you would want you could find in Rome. They had slum. They had housing projects. They had a rich elite uh, section of town where the very wealthy could go and live out their lives of leisure. Paul was entering into a very similar context where people just flat out didn't care about the story of a man from Nazareth who had died, and some people said he came back to life. People just didn't care about that. So Paul had to jump into this context and dump the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. What I want to spend our time on today is thinking through, how did he do this? How did he preach the gospel into a context where it wasn't wanted, and yet, he did it boldly. He wasn't embarrassed. He didn't fear man, even though they obviously wouldn't want to hear about it. If you were to bring this up in ancient Rome, among the powerful, among the intellectuals, you would probably get a snicker, a laugh, or people would definitely look down upon you. And such is the same in our context often today. So that's what we're going to get at. What made Paul share the gospel with no shame? How can you become a person made alive by God who can share the good news of Jesus Christ with no shame? So that's where we're going. If you want to look in the text from Romans 1, verse 16, I want to read a portion of it for you. He starts like this with this first clause. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now let's pause right there because that's actually the second part of Paul's idea. He's going to provide the motivations in this sentence 
for his actions. Now, his actions are revealed above in verse 13. Read what he says in verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul is going to preach. He's going to share Jesus to a couple of different people here. One is the church in Rome, but he also said he's also going to share with the other Gentiles, the rest of the Gentiles. So as a model to us, he's busy preaching the gospel in the church, speaking of spiritual things to the church, but he's also outside of the church, speaking of his faith, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the other people in Rome, in his sphere of influence, we might say. So that's what he is about to do. Um, So to put this thought together, back with what he says in verse 16, Paul is saying, I'm going to share my faith with people because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to share my faith because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now think about what he's saying here, because what he is implying is that if he were ashamed of the gospel, then he would not share it, right? That would be something that would stop him from sharing if he were ashamed of it. There's actually a direct connection between his eagerness in verse 15 and him being not ashamed in verse 16. So if I want us all to become more eager evangelists, and I do, I must make sure that we are not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's think about that together. What would it mean, actually, to be ashamed of the gospel, to be embarrassed by it, or to find it a bit awkward to talk about it? The first thing I want you to do is just breathe a sigh of relief. Paul seems to have a category for what we all often fear, just the awkwardness that sometimes comes up when you bring up the gospel. Or he has it in mind situations that sometimes you're just not ready. It's, you're not going to share. I want to let you off the hook in some sense to say that I think Paul has a category for that, and yet he is pushing us forward to not be ashamed of it. Just this week, I was at home, and uh, I had the baby by myself, and I was working on something, and I get the knock at the weird time on the door. And I'm thinking, this is either going to be a salesman, or it's going to be a JW. And I open the door, and there's two of them there. And these are opportunities that God just gives you, and yet I'm wrestling with the baby, and I had a hammer in my hand, and they actually say to me, this is great, they say to a pastor, would you like to discuss the scriptures? <laughs> Would you mind if I open the Bible, their Bible, and talk about it? And I thought to myself, <laughs> I'm just not ready for this. And I blew it. I, I was polite and I said something, but what an opportunity I had to engage with the gospel and I didn't. So I want to let you know that at Paul's talking about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He seems to say there are some of us who are sometimes ashamed And so he has a category for this. But as we seek to grow, what should we recognize that might be embarrassing about the gospel? What is it that makes it so hard to share? Well, Paul seems to say, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's not saying, I'm not ashamed to 
to speak the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what it is, right? So think about it. What might be in the gospel story itself that might come across as a little awkward, might embarrass you even? Well, it could be the fact that the gospel in its essence is a supernatural story, right? And in our society, a lot of people undermine the supernatural. It's just not cool to believe in the supernatural, right? It could be seen as embarrassing if you're pegged as someone who believes in the supernatural. Halloween's coming up, right? What happens at Halloween? People put ghosts up in their yard and they talk about witches and goblins and all that supernatural stuff. If you were to go up to somebody and say, hey, I believe in all that supernatural stuff, they might lump you in to some freakoid who really believes in goblins or something like that. But the fact that the gospel is supernatural is inherently different than the worldview that most people have and are carrying around today. So that could be potentially awkward or embarrassing. You might find that the gospel is hard to talk about or embarrassing because it's hard to prove. I remember having a conversation with a friend not too long ago, and I was opening the scriptures, and I was sharing Jesus. I didn't blow this one. I actually did it right. I shared Jesus to this guy, and he's like, at the end of the conversation, he's like, well, you just can't prove the Bible. You're basing your stuff off the Bible, and that document is really old, and it's it's corrupted, and you just can't prove it to me. And furthermore, there are other things here about God, his nature, that are non-verifiable. You can't prove it, and so I want nothing of it. Some people may say the historicity of the gospel is hard to prove. So, And you might be thinking, well, and it's true. It is going to be hard to actually lay out proof here. It's possible, but it would take a while. That could make it awkward in sharing the gospel. The gospel might be awkward in that way. Uh, also, it involves the good news. The gospel involves a lot of bad news, doesn't it? And that could make it an embarrassing conversation piece. Right? I was talking to Tim Chilton, who is in Asia now as a missionary, so professional gospel sharer that he is. He was sharing this week with a friend of his, and he had to convince this lady that uh, she was evil, that she had rebelled against God, right? And so he started with himself, and he said, you know, we're all rebels against God. We are all morally bad in the sense that we turn away from God. And she wouldn't have it. She was like, oh no, you're, you're not you're not a bad man, and I'm not a bad person. Surely you're not calling me evil, are you? And at that point, it was a little awkward to tell somebody, actually, you are a sinner. You guys have seen those eye watches, right? Maybe you have one of those on. I don't. But maybe you've been in churches before where after the sermon, the pastor will stand at the door, so there's no way you can get by him without shaking his hand. We don't do that here, but Imagine if I did do that today and I had a fancy iWatch on and the Siri function was set to every time I shook your hand as you walked out the door, it would state your weight. 195, 250, 305. That would be an awkward device and a hard handshake line. You would probably avoid that, right? The gospel is kind of like that. It exposes who you are. It says bad things about you because it's supposed to be a humbling message and that could make it potentially embarrassing. There may be other ways that make this a hard thing to handle. And yet, Paul says, I'm not ashamed 
of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. It's almost like he says it because he realizes how humbling it is, how hard it is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And what I love about Paul here is he's not Bible thumping. He doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's good. You, you tell it anyway. It's good, so you should be doing it. It's not what he's saying. He actually gives us a reason why he's not ashamed of it. And what happens here is the goodness of the gospel, the good news, the greatness of it overshadows any awkwardness that might be inherent in it. So let's see what he says here. Go back to verse 16. He says, Well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for or because what? It is the power of God that leads to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it in and of itself is God's saving power. And that's a game changer to Paul. So great a news is this, is that it overwhelms any inhibitions that he might have. It in and of itself is God's saving power. He's stoked because the gospel works. The gospel gets the job done. It actually works. And we have to pay attention here at this point because I read this verse and verses like this wrongly for a long time. I used to think that this verse was saying that if I share the gospel with people, I can make it possible for them to be saved. That's not a bad thought, right? If I share the gospel, I can make it possible for them to be saved. But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is worded as such that he's saying the gospel is effective. The gospel is the saving power of God. It's very similar to the thought he has in 1 Corinthians 1.18, where he says, to us who are being saved, the gospel is the power of God. Not that it has potential, but to those who have been elected by God to be his children, to be saved, the gospel is actually the transforming power of God. God. It works. How does it work? Well, the Spirit of God actually uses this story, this gospel story, to cause salvation dynamically in people and to transform them. It's like a catalyst. In science, the catalyst is a causal agent. It has causality. That's what the gospel is. The Spirit uses it, and when the gospel, this incredible dynamic story, is shared It changes all who God wants to change. Phenomenal. In short, you could say it like this. If the problem is that people have dug themselves in such a deep hole because of the rebellion against God that they can never climb out, the gospel is the only solution. It works. Speaking of work, we had a TCC Workday here a couple weeks ago on a Saturday. And some of you guys came out, and some of us had some shovels, and we were digging. And one of our tasks was to remove the ancient uh, bird feeder slash mosquito nest that we had out there. It was actually a sand thing back in the day, but now it's not good for much. So we're going to rip it out. And what that meant was there was five poles, and on top of those five poles, there was Uh, about this high, a plastic thingamajig, a plastic pot that held the sand. So we had to get it out of the ground so we would have a field to play on, right? So we got out of that. The plastic came up 
easy enough. But what we noticed when we started digging is under the dirt, there was a chink, chink, chink sound. And like, uh-oh, that's concrete. These poles were in big bulbs of concrete. As we dug and dug and dug and dug and dug, we finally got to the bottom of them to find these huge bulbs. And once we got the dirt off of them, how are we going to get them up? And so we got like three dudes, four dudes together. We got up under there and we, we wrestled it. We finally rolled one of them out of the hole. And I remember sitting there and thinking, you other guys are tired. I wasn't tired, but I thought these younger fellas are going to get really tired. And I had the thought when I looked around at these other four poles, this isn't going to work because it's going to take forever just to get them out. And then we have to put them in the disposal, which is up here, right? We can barely get it out of the hole. It's going to be a monster. And I was sitting there lamenting the ineffectiveness of the plan when in rose court Tangeman on a bobcat. Man, he comes in there on a bobcat and he takes care of, boom, 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 knocks them out, pulls them out of the ground, takes them over, dumps them in the trash can. And in that moment, none of us were ashamed of the bobcat. (laughs) Because the bobcat worked, right? It did the trick. And Paul had an assurance that the gospel of Jesus Christ worked salvation. And that was able to help him overcome some of his own potential hesitancy. So get the idea here. The gospel works where other salvation attempts do not work. And we sometimes call these fruitless methods functional saviors, right? Functional saviors that other people have outside of the gospel that they are trying to get to work towards salvation. Jerry Bridges explains functional saviors like this. He says, sometimes we look to other things to satisfy and to fulfill us, to save us. These functional saviors can be any object of dependence that we embrace that is not God. They become the source of our identity, security, and significance because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our heart. They preoccupy our mind, they consume our time and resources, and this is the key. They make us feel good and somehow... We even feel righteous. Whether we realize it or not, they control us and we begin to worship them. Just think about the functional saviors in the lives of people that you know who are not believers, right? Church leader Jeremy Roberts blogged this past week about the tragic recent situation of Lamar Odom. Maybe you know who Lamar Odom is. He is a NBA star slash reality TV star. And uh, about 10 days ago or so, he was found unconscious in Nevada after taking a combination of cocaine and 10 different performance enhancers. And he was out and he was in life and death struggle in the hospital. Here's a guy who had two NBA titles. He had his own TV show. He married into a famous family, right? Good-looking guy, tremendous wealth, athletic prowess. He had a lot of the things that a lot of people are living for, right? And yet he was discontent. It wasn't working. One time someone asked old magnate, uh, magnate, not magnate, (laughs) old magnate J.D. Rockefeller, they asked him, how much money is enough? This guy was filthy rich. They said, how much money is enough? And he actually said, "Ah, just a little bit 
more. That's how much money is enough. We've said before, this problem is eloquently addressed not too long ago by actor Jim Carrey, when Jim Carrey actually said, I wish everybody could get rich and famous and get everything they ever dreamed of so they would know that that's not the answer, right? Having all of these things that people are chasing after still leaves them fame, power, success. They fail in the end because they do not satisfy. Why is that? Well, part of the reason is each of these things only has a limited amount of joy to give. They are limited by the bounds of creation, right? The joy produced to them is limited both in uh, quality and quantity. So they're limited by creation. Quality and quantity is limited. I was talking about Halloween earlier. Uh, Last year, I go out and I, um, you know, right or wrong, I'm out. And our, our town has a party And at that time, Asa was 10 months old. And I think to myself, self, here's a baby who's kind of cute, but he's not going to eat candy. He's too young. So why don't I have him and dress him up and have a bag and I get the candy and then I get to eat it because he's too young. That would be dangerous, right? So I'm taking him around with the rest of my kids and it's working. People are actually dropping candy, full-size candy in this 10-month-old bag. and I think they understand, but they still have to do it because he's there, right? Um, and I get home, and I start dumping out my bag, and I'm going to trade with my kids and all that stuff. And I start noticing the number one candy that I've gotten in my loot. You know what it was? Was this tiny baby Butterfinger. Baby Butterfinger. I'm like, Butterfinger, what? If you're... <laughs> If you're going to give out a peanut butter candy, would you not give out the Reese's cup or the Snickers? I mean, Butterfinger's like number five in the quality of peanut butter candy. And it's no bigger, honestly, it's no bigger than my thumb. And I turn to Julie and I'm like, what is these, what are these things? And she's like, it's bite size, it's bite size. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm going to need a hundred bites of this after lugging around my fat baby. My beautifully heavy baby. The little butterfinger falls short, both in quality and quantity. It will not work. And that's A very good idea of these functional saviors that other people have. And Paul knew this. Paul was convinced that he had something bigger and that had a better taste than what the world had to offer. And so he was propelled forward by this. But he goes a little deeper even. Look in verse 17. He not only tells us why he has no shame, but he tells us why the gospel works. Why does the gospel save? Trace his argument with me here. In verse 16, he has shared how he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's saving power like a bobcat that rolls in and does what we cannot do. In verse 17, he shares precisely why the gospel is God's saving power. He said, because for For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's what I want to concentrate on from this verse. We see here that the gospel is God's saving power because of what it reveals. It reveals the righteousness of God. So the gospel's ability to transform people flows 
from its tendency to always reveal God's righteousness. Well, that's a Bible word, so let's make sure we know what it means. What does righteousness mean? John Piper has a helpful definition here. Let's use that one. God's righteousness means his commitment to do what is right. And if you read the Bible, doing what is right is always going to be God upholding his own glory, upholding his own name. So that's what God's righteousness is, where we tend to not always hold up God's name by chasing after these lesser pleasures, right? God always holds up his own name. He never falls victim to loving money most because he is infinitely wealthy, right? If he were to constantly seek man's approval above all else, he would be an idolater. So he doesn't fall into that trap. God's righteousness means he always lifts up his own glory. And that's what's revealed in the gospel. And you might think, well, wait a minute. If I am unrighteous chasing after these other functional saviors and God is totally righteous, how is it good news that the gospel shows how righteous God is? Wouldn't that be like going to the gym and I'm working out in front of the mirror, you know, and then somebody walks up behind me who's 20 years old and they're in shape and they start like... (laughs) My lameness is revealed. My weakness is revealed in light of this person's inshapedness, right? That's not good for me. That's bad news. But in the gospel, God reveals his righteousness, and then he gives it to us. The amazing thing about the good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus came and actually upheld God's glory at every step of his life. He always made much of God the Father. He was righteous. And when he died, he paid the penalty for our sins. And God looked at this sacrifice and said, I'm going to make a great exchange. I'm going to give these unrighteous people Christ's righteousness. And that is what's revealed in the gospel. So it's good news, not because we're now compared to God, but we receive the righteousness of Christ, thereby diverting God's wrath. He's pleased with us now. He's transforming us also to be people who will more and more and more as we grow in Christ seek to uphold God's glory just like God does. So it's not as if God dangles his righteousness in front of us in the gospel and says, aha, I'm holy, you're not. It's not it at all. He said, I am righteous, you are not, but let me graciously give you the righteousness of my son through his death and resurrection. So that's a long way of saying Through the death and resurrection of Christ, we are both seen as righteous, declared righteous, and we are being transformed as righteous. So let's circle back really quickly, because we started this conversation talking about evangelism, right? So how can we grow in our eagerness to share the story of Christ with those we know? Well, it appears that Paul had an awareness of the greatness of Christ in the gospel, So Paul's awareness of the greatness of Christ in the gospel actually unleashed his ability to go and share it. He was walking around with a knowledge that he had the better candy bar, right? He didn't have the baby bar. He had something better. And since he had that knowledge awareness, he was willing to share it. So how can we improve in that? Not a gospel sharing technique application, as much as how can we increase our awareness so that we're ready. I wasn't ready 
when the JWs came to my door. But I didn't have something going on inside of here, else it would have overflowed. It's not that hard. They're on my porch, right? <laughs> my turf. They're in my realm with the scriptures. I can handle this. But I wasn't ready internally. How can we be ready internally with the awareness of Jesus Christ? A couple things. They're not brain science. We've talked about them before, but I want to remind you of a couple things that can help us be aware of the greatness of Christ as we're going in our lives so that the people in our sphere of influence will hear the gospel from us. First, stoke your affections for Christ through intentional conversations in Christian community. Stoke your affections for Christ through intentional conversation when you're among believers. Hebrews gives us a clear warning about this. Someone reminded me of this text this week in Hebrews 3. Listen to the word the author of Hebrews gives us as a way of warning. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So at the very least, if you're not meditating on the greatness of Christ, if your affections aren't up here, you're in an unbelieving type of state. You're not trusting God as much as you could be, and that could lead to a lack of evangelism, right? Well, he gives us a hint how to stoke that fire in verse 13. Instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, come together and talk about the glories of Christ often so that when you go and when you're at work and when you're family over the holiday period, the gospel will just come out because you have an awareness of how great the gospel is. And if you hear people talking about functional saviors, you can make a comparison. The gospel, the good news of how great your God is, will just come out. We do this here strategically through community groups, through O2 groups, and lots of various ways where we invite you guys to come together and to actually speak about the glories of Christ and community. And it also kind of works out your gospel talking muscles, right? It's not natural sometimes to verbalize the greatness of God. You might not have been taught that when you were growing up, to speak well of God in conversation. If you do that in community, you learn how to do that, and then when you're around unbelievers, you can speak that way as well. One other way, we can walk daily in the appreciation of the gospel so that it will overflow to evangelism like in Paul. Another way to appreciate the glories of the gospel is to use the physical world you're living in as a gateway to the gospel. Use the actual physical world. For instance, tonight I'm going to go to a party with unbelievers. And um, we'll be on NC State campus and we'll be there and we'll eat dinner. That's a part of what we're going to do. And before I eat, I'm going to be hungry. And after I eat, I won't be hungry for a little while. And then Later, either at breakfast time or in the middle of the night, I'm going to get hungry again. And, and so everybody is sharing that, com that common experience. The unbelievers are eating too. And they know what it's like to be satisfied for a little while and then to be unsatisfied and wanting to eat again. And so I can just say, hey, man, that was a great meal. But isn't it something how I'm going to be hungry again and want a midnight snack? Or in breakfast time, I'm going to be starving again. Yeah, yeah, that is something. Could it be that we're not totally satisfied by the things of this world? Oh, well, maybe, maybe. 
Let me tell you about something that I think will keep us spiritually satisfied for all eternity and then launch the gospel. What I'm doing is I'm using the physical things that God has given us in the world to click my mind on this idea. It's like a, it's like a mouse click. It clicks in my mind that, oh yeah, the gospel is so great. And we can do that as we go throughout our life. So as we wind down here, we're going to go to a baptism. And what I want you to do is to look at the baptism and actually use that part of the physical world to remind you of the greatness of Jesus so that when you leave here today, you'll have the gospel on your mind and hopefully it will come out better and better and more often. So why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's God's saving power. How does it save? It reveals the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your glorious gospel that so clearly reveals how righteous you are and also that the righteousness of yourself has been transposed onto us. And we glory in that, God. And I, my prayer is that you will just create in us an awareness, an awareness that subsides so that when we are in life with unbelievers, this will come up. Little by little or all at once, the gospel will be shared and you will be glorified and our joy will be complete. God, make us alive to the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel so that we may share it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.